Australia, the United States and Britain is to unveil a new security pact this morning. Today we join our nations in a next generation partnership built on a strong foundation of proven trust. The new three nation security pact uh, called AUKUS is being seen as a bid to counter growing Chinese influence. The United States, Australia and the United Kingdom have long been faithful and capable partners and we're even closer today. It means that Australia is, is operating you know, even further into a level of military integration. It just highlights that New Zealand's not playing in that kind of league. We're opening a new chapter in our friendship and the first task of this partnership will be to help Australia acquire a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines. The big kids in the playground have started a new club and guess who wasn't invited? No, we weren't approached, but nor would I expect us to be. The centrepiece of this arrangement is the building of nuclear-powered submarines to be based out of Australia. And Prime Minister Morrison and indeed all partners are very well-versed and understand our position on nuclear-powered vessels and also nuclear weapons. Kia ora, I'm Emil Bonovan, and today on The Detail, the AUKUS deal. What is it? What does it mean for New Zealand's place in the Indo-Pacific? Does the fact that we've been shut out suggest our traditional allies are moving on without us? And is it really possible that this could precipitate serious military conflict between the two great powers of our time? Robert Patman is a professor of international relations at Otago University. I began by asking him to explain exactly what the AUKUS agreement is. It's a trilateral security pact between the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and Australia to enhance and intensify military cooperation, uh, but also cooperation in industrial and in technology areas. And all this is being done with a focus on the Indo-Pacific. Although the three parties in their joint statement when this was announced last week didn't identify any particular country this was directed at. I think it's quite clear the three parties concerned are very worried about what they see as China's assertive foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific. Now, the Indo-Pacific is a vital region. It's going to continue to be vital both economically and geostrategically. Uh, it contains 60% of the world's population. It has some rock star economies in it, such as China, Japan, South Korea, but it also has some of the world's fastest growing economies within it, uh, Vietnam and India being amongst those. So what's the purpose of their cooperation? They believe that this cooperation will help them safeguard the international rules-based order, and they believe that uh, it's important they signal to China that China will face resistance if China continues and other authoritarian countries continue to throw their weight around in the Indochina region. You were interviewed on Nine to Noon about this, along with the Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta, and when she was explaining what this was, she was very clipped and actually kind of vague. She said it was an agreement between the US, the UK and Australia based on the similar goals and values that they have. Which is clear as mud mm. to me. I don't know. Maybe it may, makes sense in sort of um, uh, international relations speak. But like, what, are, what does she mean by that? What are those goals and values that she's talking about there? Well, the three countries concerned see themselves as democracies upholding human rights 
and also a commitment to what is called the rules-based system or international rules-based system where institutions, international institutions, have some authority. To give you an example of how they're concerned about the, some of the trends in the Indo-Pacific, um, in 2016, the Philippines, which is one of the, I think, six or seven countries which is party to a dispute over ownership of the South China Sea, took China to the Hague Arbitration Authority. And the Hague ruled in the Philippines' favour and said that China's big claims to virtually 90% of the South China Sea area were, as they put it, historically unfounded. But China responded to that ruling, which went against it, by ignoring it. China is refusing to recognise the Hague's historic court ruling yesterday over territory in the South China Sea in favour of the Philippines. Beijing says it might now then boost its military presence in the region. And I think um, this is an example of a superpower which was not playing by the rules as other parties saw it. Both Germany and New Zealand were very critical of China's wholesale rejection of the finding by an impartial third-party body. So that's a concern. But, you know, critics point out that China doesn't have a monopoly on breaching the rules. The United States, for example, in 2003, ignored the UN Security Council and um, with the Australia and the United Kingdom invaded Iraq. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. A war which, in the words of the then UN Secretary General, was illegal. So, uh, and New Zealand opposed that action. But, yeah, I think it's not just these three countries which have concerns about democracy, the rules-based order, uh, and human rights. I think there's many countries in the region uh, which have similar concerns. There have been some grumblings in New Zealand about this regarding why we weren't part of that club. You don't think it would have been a good thing? Well, I don't think... I think it would have caused a domestic political crisis in this country because since the mid-'80s, this country has pledged itself to follow a a non-nuclear security policy, and that policy has been endorsed by successive Labour and national governments. I'm going to give it to you if you hold your breath, just for a moment. (laughs) I can smell the uranium on it as you lean towards it. <laughs> it will be very difficult to be part of an arrangement, which is actually as one of its first initiatives, one of the first initiatives of AUKUS, is to give Australia, Australian submarines, the capability to be nuclear-powered. There's some problems there from our point of view. The other thing is that we have a different worldview from both the UK and Australia, and let's be quite candid about this, Both the UK and Australia tend to believe that their security and their national interests are best safeguarded by being close to the United States, the world's most powerful country. Mm. New Zealand has excellent relations with the United States. Indeed, it has resumed a security relationship with it. But it doesn't mean that New Zealand always sees its interests as being strictly in alignment with the United States. And the example I've already given In 2003, Helen Clark's Labour-led government believed that the invasion of Iraq was strategically counterproductive and would be disastrous, and her judgment was largely right. So, in a sense, we have a different worldview. New Zealand tends to see, I think, the world increasingly interconnected, 
a world in which most of the major problems do not respect borders, whether it be COVID-19, whether it be transnational terrorism, whether it be climate change, none of these problems respect borders. And these problems are proliferating. So New Zealand's approach, I think, is to build for international solutions to international problems. Mm. And basically, uh, um, I think that's a bit of a dividing line between New Zealand on the one hand and old friends and allies like uh, UK and Australia on the other. Do you see this AUKUS agreement as being possibly the start of a sort of tightening of the alliance between the UK, the United States and and Australia? And do you think that this could have knock-on effects on our relationship with those three countries? Perhaps they will start to sort of withdraw and isolate themselves more? Not necessarily, but your question depends on how this arrangement works out. If it works out well, it may have the effect of tightening the relationship. But let's be quite clear about this. The relationship between the United Kingdom and the US has been quite cool. The US has told the Boris Johnson government that it won't have a free trade. Free trade agreement with Britain is not a priority because it's unhappy about Britain's decision to leave the EU. This government's unhappy with that, not least because it's presenting a question mark over the Good Friday Accord. So there's also been signs of coolness between Scott Morrison's government and the Biden administration. So I'm not sure that, you know, this agreement is going to bring about a magical and positive transformation of relations between the three of them. What's the implications for New Zealand? I think we will continue to enjoy very good relations with all three, and I don't see it as something which will disturb New Zealand's relations with the three of them. If anything, New Zealand's international profile could be enhanced by this. Already, New Zealand's international profile has been massively enhanced in the last three years. Jacinda Ardern's response to the Christchurch terror atrocity and also this government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic has won it a lot of applause internationally. Now, with the AUKUS initiative underway, New Zealand is not part of that, and that will confirm what many... Asian and Indo-Pacific countries already believe about New Zealand, that it's not an echo of the United States or Western countries and is prepared to make its decisions independently. Although, of course, it has very good relations with uh, Western countries and indeed is part of the Five Eyes Alliance. Robert, what does China think of all of this AUKUS stuff? Well, China has predictably lashed out. Zhao Lijian, the foreign ministry spokesperson, stood up in Beijing yesterday and he said that these moves would seriously undermine regional peace and stability. He claimed that Australia was really contributing to an intensification of the arms race, it's the words that he used, um, and also was basically undermining nuclear non-proliferation in the region. So they're sort of seeing this from a very historical point of view. Zhao also made the point, and this is something that China is saying more and more frequently now, which is that the US and its allies are really adopting something of a Cold War mentality or a zero-sum mentality, basically singling out China um, and, and that's sort of leaving China increasingly isolated, which in, in some respects is the actual design of the whole um, enterprise. So they are right, perhaps, on that front. But, you know, the, the problem with AUKUS is that it's rather played into China's hands. Immediately, the Chinese media commentators are pointing to the fact that these three countries, two of them have problematic historical baggage 
with regard to the Indo-Pacific, Britain's a former colonial power. And secondly, the United States, its dealings in the region haven't always been happy. For example, although it's got a lot of allies in the Indo-Pacific, memories do linger, it did have an unhappy involvement in the Vietnam War. And there's already been some diplomatic fallout. France, which had an agreement worth around $100 billion to supply Australia with diesel-powered submarines, saw that deal supplanted by the AUKUS arrangement and in retaliation withdrew its ambassadors from Australia and the US. Here is the French ambassador to Australia, Jean-Pierre Thébault, as he was leaving. I think uh, this has been a huge mistake, a very, very bad handling of the partnership because it was not a contract, it was a partnership. A first partnership that's supposed to be based on trust, mutual understanding, and also a partnership based, you know, on sincerity. And the other thing is, the United Kingdom is geographically not part of the Indo-Pacific. So one of the criticisms which China is exploiting is that how representative are these three countries of the majority of countries within the Indo-Pacific? One of the concerns that some of us have is that this initiative, will it strengthen or will it weaken Chinese assertive behaviour? And that remains to be seen. I remember when the story broke, and I kind of saw this story, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's one to keep an eye on, you know, but it wasn't, like, front of mind for me. And then my boss sent me an article by Audrey Young in The Herald, and the headline for that was preparing for war between the US and China and what it means for New Zealand. And this is also something that the Australian Defence Minister Peter Dutton has kind of more obliquely referred to. Do you think we will be at some point in the future at war with China? Uh, The Chinese uh, spokespersons for uh, the Communist Party are very clear about their intent with regard to Taiwan. Now, equally, the United States has been clear about their intention toward Taiwan. Uh, Nobody wants to see conflict, but... Uh, that really is a question for the Chinese as to whether, as we've seen in Hong Kong, they make a decision uh, to do something in regard to Taiwan. If that's the case, what's the Americans' response? And uh, we obviously have an alliance with the United States uh, that's been in force now for 70 years. Uh, so we need to be realistic about that. Is that actually a serious possibility that war between these two countries might actually break out? It could break out inadvertently, but I think neither country has any real self-interest in having a full-blown war. Uh, They're economically connected in a substantial way. The United States has been one of the biggest export markets for Chinese products, and a lot of American companies are deeply involved in the China market, you know, Google, Apple, etc. So uh, there's a lot, actually, that these countries have built over the last three decades. And, you know, if you want to point to two countries that have done well out of globalisation, you'd have to identify the United States and China. They've done very nicely, thank you, out of the growing interconnectedness of the world. So, you know, I'm sceptical that these two countries would deliberately seek war, but they may seek advantages over each other by taking tough stands. And there's another thing here. The assumption about, so what if they go to war with each other? What would they achieve? Neither of them can run the world. If they could, they would. Haven't China and the United States been leading the world on COVID-19? No. Have they been leading the world over climate change? No. These problems 
cannot be resolved unilaterally. So, you know, China and the United States, their rivalry in some ways, you know, without being too glib, resembles two bald individuals arguing over a comb. Why are they going head to head all the time? Because they can't control the world. The, the, you know, the world is a big, complex, interconnected place. And one of the big problems of AUKUS is it's based on a binary interpretation of the region. That is to say, it's based on the assumption that US-China rivalry will determine the destiny and the future of the Indochina. Well, try telling that to a lot of the countries living in the region. Countries, big economies like Japan, India, they don't want to see their future as being a pawn in a rivalry between the US and China. So when people start talking about, oh, there's going to be war between the US and China, I think a lot of other countries will have a, quite a lot of say in this. And we are living in a world where most of the problems facing states, big and small, cannot be solved by great powers acting alone. They don't always realise that, but they will do over time. There have been some interesting moves from China lately, Robert. I mean, on the heels of this, it emerged that China has applied to join the world's biggest free trade agreement, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP. The author, Brush Doshi, who has just written a book about this, suggesting that China's moves to join groups like um, the ASEAN Group and APEC, and, and perhaps this is also the case with the CPTPP, is is motivated by a kind of like multilateralism, preemptively making sure that it won't be encircled by the US and its allies, you know, the idea being the more friends that you have, the better, the, the less of a global pariah that you kind of make your, yourself. Do you think there is anything to do that? Do you think that is the motivation behind this request to join the CPTPP? Possibly. I think that's highly likely. Sometimes I think China's economic interdependence with the rest of the world is sometimes masked by its spectacular increase in national power during the last two or three decades. Um, China's power has been linked to its ability to export products to the rest of the world. And clearly, it wants that to continue. If for any reason China got involved in a conflict with the United States or anyone else, it would have direct political dangers for the regime in Beijing. Because in China, there is an informal contract between the Chinese government, which monopolizes political power, and the Chinese people, 1.5 billion of them. In return for monopolising political power, the Chinese government must deliver economic growth, and it has done this very successfully. More than 500 million Chinese have been lifted out of poverty in the last two or three decades. Mm. But if there is a conflict and if China is unable to participate in the global economy, that puts all that at risk. And people in China who are very well educated may question the logic of supporting a one-party state, if that one-party state can no longer deliver ever-increased or ever-enhanced standards of living. Coming back to your specific point about the comprehensive, progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, a succession of New Zealand governments have always encouraged China to think about being a member. But, you know, the United States can't have it both ways. It was party to the negotiations leading to the formation of this, then pulled out. The Trump administration effectively unsigned the agreement that it was going to join. Now, China wants to join, but that opportunity, to some degree, has been facilitated by the fact that the United States is not in there. 
that was one of the principal reasons I think the Obama administration were very keen to be part of this agreement, to, to have a real foothold economically in the Indo-Pacific region and possibly act as an economic competitor close up, so to speak, with China. Mm. So I'm not surprised that China's moving in this direction and it, it's clearly seeking to take advantage of the fact that the US declined to join this free trade uh, agreement. 18 months' time, Australia may well have nuclear-powered submarines. What practically will this AUKUS deal mean for the seas around New Zealand? Will there be any sort of tangible, noticeable change that normal New Zealand people will will notice or will hear about? Well, it's very difficult to answer with absolute precision because we're not quite sure what's, what follows. We know that Australia has the intention to obtain nuclear-powered submarines, which will enable those submarines to stay at sea for long periods of time. And that's clearly something which the Americans want. But I don't think those submarines will be deployed around very much in the Pacific, more in the, in the area closer to China. So, yeah, I'd be surprised on the face of it uh, if we notice a huge difference in terms of I don't think the New Zealand government would be comfortable with nuclear power submarines coming to New Zealand. But um, so that's another issue. But uh, yeah, I'll be surprised if we notice any immediate changes. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can download us free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Professor Robert Patman. Matewa. <laughs> <laughs>